Welcome to the Florence Guild podcast, a collection of conversations with business and cultural leaders delivering insight into future approaches to business and life. Through conversations in an array of styles, from salon talks to lifestyle events, through to intimate facilitated lunches and dinners, Florence Guild promotes encounters, satiates curiosity, and allows insight into future approaches to business and life. The following Florence Guild conversation was recorded live at Work Club Melbourne, Australia's most forward-thinking workspace. This episode's conversation brings along another possible anti-disciplinary approach in politics. Today, democracy is synonymous with representation by election. But is there another way to represent the people? Let's ask Nicholas Gruen, policy economist, entrepreneur and commentator, founder of Lateral Economics and Peach Financial, visiting professor at King's College London Policy Institute and adjunct professor at the UTS Business School. Is there a simple solution to a complex problem? Detoxing our democracy a la ancient Athens. A Florence Guild conversation with Nicholas Gruen. Thank you. Well, um, I run a company called Lateral Economics and I'm sort of gradually getting more and more interested in uh, politics and what's wrong with politics. Um, there are some uh, predecessors, much more illustrious predecessors than me, of course, who've gone similar pathways. Adam Smith, the original modern economist, was always interested in the whole thing. Uh, Frederick Hayek sort of made his name as an economist, but eventually became a kind of political philosopher. And I am kind of uninterested in very abstract thinking for its own sake or thinking that gets itself bogged down very much in abstract ideas. Uh, but I'm very interested in abstract thinking next to examples and next to compelling commonsensical illustrations of what I'm talking about. And it's quite rare when you find a simple sol solution to a complex problem, but I think I have one and I'm going to try and persuade you of it. So here's a friend of mine and his name's Joe Trippi. And he was Howard Dean's campaign manager. And Howard Dean is the guy who, un who via Joe, worked out how to turn the internet into a, an unbeatable campaigning and money-making machine. And he went from being an outsider to being a, the front runner in the 2004 election. And the team that Joe put together was reassembled um, with plenty of other people, of course, as well, to the next, in the next presidential cycle and became Barack Obama's team. Joe wrote a book, which I keep telling him is all bollocks. Um, great title, The Revolution Will Not Be Televised. And the idea is that now we've got the internet, politics will clean itself up because the people will clean it up. How is that going? Um, so Barack Obama had exactly the same idea. And when he got in, he was right into the internet, social media and so on. And what could be better than to have a policy brainstorming? So basically a website was set up and people could 
propose ideas and send and vote for, they proposed ideas and vote, voted for other people's ideas and the result was a league ladder of the people's suggestions. So what do you think topped the bill? Legalising marijuana. This is at a time when the world was, this is the end of, well it's not the end of 2008, it's the about May, April, May of 2009. The world is sliding into the worst economic situation since the Great Depression. That's, how, well, that's what comes out of that process. What do you think came second? That's what came second. And now I don't think, now I don't know how much this would be replicated in Australia, but I don't think what came third would be replicated in Australia because it just is on the historical record that we have less problem with our citizens being abducted by aliens. <laughs> so welcome to Vox Pop Democracy. That's how we run democracy and that's how our democracy works. Now, some of that is our fault because when we go to an election, we have had time to think, but the whole way in which campaigning is done doesn't encourage that and we are part of the problem. It would be pretty bizarre if we were not since we the people who, we, are, we the people are the people who vote for the, them, the politicians who we're so damned down on. So um, this is, uh, now by the way, when I was writing an essay in 2000 and um, when I was writing an essay in 2011, I used Joe's book to kick off from and say, I think he's wrong. And I had a little debate with him online and he now agrees uh, that he was wrong. And so does the co-founder of Twitter and also the founder of Medium. And that was, uh, Joe tweeted that about two days ago, so I put it in my presentation, and then I had a nice little self-congratulatory tweet. Um, <laughs> so that's what tonight is all about. Um, so this is where we are, and we are comfortable in saying that Brexit and Trump are the, the lodestars of the problem we're in, but Australia has a way of leading the world. We led the world in neoliberal reform and we actually did it better than most other countries because as well as becoming much more market oriented, getting an economy for ourselves that was much more market, market oriented and flexible, which got us through the mining boom and all sorts of things. Um, uh, so, so, so in addition to that, um, we, when, when we pioneered neoliberal reform, we were the only English-speaking country that put a lot more of the dividend from reform into uh, compensating people who were doing less well out of the market. So we led the world in that, and this is another way in which we led the world in vox pop democracy. Because what happened was that the, ninth, the 2013 Parliament, what was the greatest achievement of the 2013 Parliament? 
that this man came to the Prime Ministership to lead? Well, would you, I can, I can do, I can improve, that's all right, I can improve that for you. What was the, what was the, sing, what was the signal achievement of the 2013 Parliament? Stop the carbon tax. That's right. What proportion of the parliamentarians of Australia do you think thought that was good policy? 20? Yeah. 70%, 80%, quite possibly 90% of the parliamentarians of Australia knew they were doing the wrong thing. And most of them are pretty reasonable people. Most of them went into their job. Yes, they're incorrigible egotists, but there are plenty of them around. And they went into their job to do it well, as well as the circumstances would permit them. And that was the upshot. So things are pretty bad. And we led the world in demonstrating that. And I think there's an extremely good analogy here with um, this story, which is that we evolved on the African savanna and we, all of our instincts were pretty well suited to, um, to prospering on the African savanna. We were revolted by food that was off. We liked fatty food, we liked sugar. And over decades or centuries, but we'll just say decades of market competition and optimization, this is where we ended up. This is where those basically good instincts took us. I think that's happened throughout our culture. Um, capitalism, I think, is really good at building cars and cookies and running restaurants and doing all sorts of things. Culture, not so much. And, um, and then there's the problem of public goods, which is what, what politics is about. And so that's, if we go back to the African savannah, these people identified themselves as a group and it was emotions that did that, that evolved to do that, and ethics, not reason. They didn't sit around and do game theory to work out that they needed to cooperate. They, they learned to cooperate. And it's emotions that are the fat and the sugar and the salt of modern politics, of pretty much any politics um, over any large number of people. And that's a big problem, and people have recognised that as a big problem for a long time. And emotions can bind society together for good. Mostly people who are appealing to emotions or when emotions get heavily involved, it's for bad reasons, destructive reasons. It emphasises the us and the them, which again evolved on the African savannah, the two most important um, words on the Africans, the two most important pronouns in our prehistory would have to be us and them. So let me show you the same event 
in Australian political history an iconic event through the prism of emotion. Do you know who, do you know what that's describing? That's describing the same thing that John Howard came to describe or to refer to in a very different way. Children overboard. That was the first thing that was said that afternoon by a person who fished little kids out of the water and felt proud about it. And he was told to shut his, shut his mouth by him, effectively. And this wasn't banned. This was in the papers. But this was the one that won the battle of vox pop democracy. The logic of political combat in our society has you ending up there when there are two ways to go. Given that we're not going to solve this with a very rational discussion because nobody will read all the articles, how, which emotions do we want guiding our collective life? And just in terms of getting the policy right, emotions are actually terrible for most of this stuff, including, by the way, asylum seekers, because the left just tells us how terrible it is to have people on Manus, which is absolutely true, but there are 60 million refugees in the world and we can't take them all, so we're going to have to be pretty nasty about it. And we don't face up to that either. Uh, so what we have is a kind of a big emotionally exciting debate, uh, but we don't solve those problems very well. And there's a whole lot of other problems that vox pop democracy has been very bad at solving. That it's got solutions to them, but they're not very well reasoned solutions. Um, so I'm going to give you a list of things. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on all of those things. We can talk about, I'm going to put those things up um, at the end of the talk and we can maybe use it as a bit of an agenda for a talk if anyone wants to or they can ask me to explain one of those words. But you can pick up what I mean by quite a lot of those things. Uh, sorry, what about compression? compression? So compression is the sound bite. So, so um, in 1968, the average sound bite in America was 43 seconds. And by 1988, it was nine seconds. Big deal. It's a big story. That's what I mean by compression. And the other ones, you can work out probably the other ones. You might be a bit mystified by that. I've already adverted to it a little bit and you'll be maybe more mystified by that, but we can maybe go on and talk about that. Um, or I'll, yeah, we'll, we'll come back to it to the extent that we have time. I, I was in London when I saw this and I just couldn't believe it. So this is a, an elite, a very wealthy owner of the Daily Mail, simply blitzing the cultural respect for elites, simply embracing mob rule. Uh, so this was three judges of the UK High Court holding that Theresa May could not exercise Article 50 of the European Convention or whatever it's called 
to exit the European Union without a vote of parliament because reasoned their honours, I'm just trying to be pompous there, because reasoned these guys in funny suits, the UK is a parliamentary democracy. It's not a direct democracy, never has been. I hope it never will be. Um, so that's what, th that is called the rule of law. And apparently the rule of law makes people enemies of the people when they don't adhere to mob rule. That is why we have judges, I assert. And the same kind of thing happens here. Um, and those are different proprietors, by the way. So that's kind of, re that's relevant because while it's kind of okay to demonize those proprietors, there's something in the market forces, there's something in the power that media owners have that produces this, which is I think incredibly damaging. That's, you know, that is the political equivalent of that. Or rather, it's a particular, I mean, McDonald's is actually not trying to poison you, they're just trying to make money. Whereas these people have an agenda. There's more to it than that. Okay. And out of that, what do we get? That's what we get. That's where we are right now, the logical consequence of this. So um, what can be done? That's what I think can be done. But firstly, we have to clear up that I'm not talking about participatory democracy um, or direct democracy. Uh, we can talk again, talk about this in, in uh, later if you want, but I think going to direct democracy, which is the kind of thing Joe Trippi was alluding to, we have the technology to do it and I think that would make things worse, not better. But one way, one, one um, place that this takes us, and we're back to Schumpeter again, this is an incredibly important thing. Democracy, running any complex organization requires a, co a division of labor and a division of cognitive labor. And that means a lot for how we govern ourselves. That, by the way, is why I think, well, a sort of a snapshot of some reasons I think participatory democracy or more direct democracy would make things worse, not better. So here are two ways of representing the people. By election, fairly recent, uh, our parliaments are built on it, party, uh, it's fairly recent. So elections became normal at the time of the American and then French revolutions. 1776, 1789 is the American constitution. 1789 is also the French revolution. At the time, the, at the, time the founding fathers and the French revolutionaries, certainly the ones with the most power, were democracy was an extremely dirty word. It would have been suicide in a debate to say what I want is democracy. And they were trying to convince people that if you had elections, you ended up with an arist you ended up with a kind of an aristocracy. And that appeals to us as well because we think of it as meritocratic, because we pick somebody who um, we somehow look up to. And sure enough, if you look at the for instance, educational makeup of our parliament. It's uh, unlike our parliament of the 
1940s when a train driver was the Prime Minister, it's wall-to-wall -wall university education. It's a big problem. Uh, it's how we get people like Pauline Hanson. So that's how you do it with elections. And the alternative which the Athenians used a great deal is election by lot. Much older lineage. The Eboule is the executive council, 500 people, um, 50 chosen from each of the 10 tribes, and they sort of ran the city, prepared the agenda paper for the Ecclesia, which was the uh, citizens' assembly, exec executed the citizens' assembly um, decisions and so on. There's lots to be said there. Uh, European cities had this kind of mechanism. Re Renaissance Italy had these kinds of mechanisms throughout the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. Uh, we still have this in our courts, enshrined in Magna Carta and so on. There is a word, a Greek word, common in Greek democracy, which is sometimes translated as freedom of speech, but the Athenians had a word for freedom of speech, the simple freedom to say anything you want. This meant something different. You'll recognize that ESOL there, that's uh, like ISO bars on a, on a weather map, it means the same. It means a quality of speech, which is not something we have in our democracy. The, the right to be listened to as a as an equal. So here we have juries, and of course you would be familiar with the idea of citizen juries, which take the idea of juries into politics. But they are largely, um, so far they have largely been advisory. So um, here's an example of a, uh, of a, of a citizen's jury. Um, I chaired this organisation for six years, ending in December last year, and we did some of the legwork to run the citizens' jury. You can tell from the question being asked that this is the sort of thing, firstly, that citizens' juries are good at, and secondly, that governments feel okay about getting advice from citizens' juries, because they sort of don't know what to do themselves. Nothing too terrible could go wrong, and they're sort of curious to see what happens. Uh, but it's not any big deal that's going to give them a big problem at the next election. And it's quite amazing to see the kinds of comments that are made. And I'll take you through some of these, uh, some of these in white as sort of the secondary source, if you like, a kind of a commentary in our report about what we found. And then you will see comments in purple. Oh, sorry, in, in, that, slightly, uh, uh, in that slightly light blue text. That was one of the things that people associate political discussion with activists, and they basically hate activists because activists are self-righteous and are there to manipulate, cajole, do any, they're not really there to have a, an interesting conversation. They've got their opponents and they're trying to beat their opponents. And people hate that. So that's two different, um, those are two different comments. Um, the other thing is that Consider the logic of electoral democracy. Um, consider the logic of electoral democracy. You cannot be of any, you cannot have any influence until and unless you've beaten somebody else. That's how you get into parliament. 
the logic, and then when you get into parliament, what are you doing? You're trying to beat somebody else. That is the logic of electoral democracy. It's not all bad. If there's a right and a wrong answer, this kind of competition might be a good way to settle upon it. But, you, but there's lots bad about it. It's this kind of thing that's bad about it, because if this sort of thing were talked about on the airwaves, you wouldn't have this instinct to learn about what it's like from other people's perspective, particularly if they're in the same room as you, and see if you can accommodate them. Uh, feeling of self-selection, uh, these, are, these are some highlights. Sorry about the people listening to the podcast. You can look at the slides, which are open source. Um, if you receive an invitation from the Premier, it's a rare thing to pick uh, out of your post box. It's a gift. People get a tremendous sense of honour and duty out of this. Uh, and, and, to give, and, and the other thing that it does is that it stimulates civic engagement at a time when, if we weren't forced to vote compulsorily, which I think is a good thing, at, uh, at a time when our vote would be going down and is in most other countries, of the 40, I think it was 42 people in a citizen's jury in Melbourne City Council, three of them stood for local government after having been involved in the citizen's jury. They got into it. They liked it. Uh, yeah. Sorry, I might have missed something here. Go. Yeah, please do. I can have some beer. Competition and sort of voting and so forth. What was the mechanism by which... Thanks for consensus or whatever. Oh, okay. Um, well, I should say that this was a this was a body that was chosen at random from the from the South Australian population or the Adelaide population. Sorry, I meant about the any issue that I'm looking. I know, I know. Yes, and um, usually in these things, it's a little bit like a citizens. It's a little bit like a legal jury. In some states. Um, a jury is a hung jury if it isn't unanimous. That's with 12 people. In most states of Australia, I think it's less than that. So you can have one or two dissentients, sometimes three. So nine to three from my back in my old law school days. That's what I remember the greatest tolerance. But, uh, and, I'm, uh, and I'm pretty sure something similar applied there. Sometimes 80% is required. I think it should be somewhat less than that. But I'm pretty uninterested in a vote of 41 people that goes 2021. Who cares? That's that's the that's just selection bias. You can't convince anyone that it's not selection bias. So the idea of a citizens jury is to look for something like why don't we price carbon? That 80% of parliamentarians, when they think about it, know is a better way to deliver targets than anything else. Uh, so uh, is that is that cleared that up for you? Good. Um, and the other thing is that people have got themselves worked up about how much they hate politicians and bureaucrats and all, they've all been wound up into the polarization of this and they get wound up by the media and everyone, and they're told that everyone's talking their own book and everyone's being self-interested. And when they get confronted with what's actually going on, they see that people typically are trying to do a good job. A few people aren't. Uh, you probably <coughs> noticed that in your own life. But mostly people try and do a good job. And yet we're in this state of considerable dysfunction. Um, 
And there's a few other quotes which I won't, uh, I won't um, spend any time on. You can have a look at the slides will be available to you if you want to download them later. Um, the only social institution that the juror's opinion fell for from an already low base was, you guessed it, the media, because they said, we have been systematically lied to for our entertainment and their clicks and their circulation. And, and then the media came and covered their citizens' jury and they were angry all over again. Uh, it's really something being covered by the media. It's a sort of 52 cards up exercise. You say things and then they just pick them out and stick them in the story. And you just learn to, as I get quoted, I mean, mostly I'm not quoted in any hostile way, but you just learn that you'll just be, your message will be scrambled with good intent or bad. You, that's, that's the way the system works. Um, and there, this is a sort of fairly, this is a fairly typical kind of quote. Um, and I'll just race through those as well. Um, so many were impressed by, by, by the sense of empowerment and the great job that citizens did. We have a much too low opinion, particularly of people who don't have university degrees, of people's ability to reason their way and think their way and emote their way to some kind of relatively benign social consensus. That's what we're after. So when we look at these two, two views, I want to assert that out of a citizen's jury type of arrangement, that is the sentiment that would dominate or at least have a chance against the other one. And that's what we need desperately, I think. Here's a really simple il illustration of the power of this. Uh, citizens initiated referenda are a form of direct democracy. You, you get a certain number of signatures and then you put it to the people. They work very effective. They're a bit like guns, actually. They work extremely well in Switzerland and terribly in the United States. Uh, so Switzerland is slightly more armed than the United States and has one of the lowest gun crime rates in the world. And the United States has got uh, the second most guns per person in the world of possibly more than Switzerland and the highest, right through the roof. And it's quite similar with citizens initiated referenda. And in Oregon, and, and what happens with citizens initiated referendums is that they get, they are like everything else in Vox Pop democracy, colonized by special interests. And so Proposition 13 is a very famous one from 1978, if I, my memory serves me correctly, which it may well not do. And that was a tax revolt and it bankrupted California and California had the best schools in the country and now they're all bankrupt. They're still quite good schools, but they're, they're rolling bankrupt. Um, so in Oregon, they noted that they wanted to do something about this. And so they, since 2011, it is legislated that if you want to have a citizens initiated referendum, you have to have a citizens review, which is a 24 person citizens jury and that citizen's jury sits for four days and issues a 300 word statement in favor and against and tells you how many people voted one way or the other. Proposition 73, measure 73, was that old chestnut of 
Vox Pop Democracy. Why? We want to get those, those criminals, don't we? So we're going to have mandatory sentencing so those Ponzi judges, the enemies of the people, do what we tell them to do. Who's running this show? And if you actually read the mandatory sentences, they actually, you know, the, even the description of what the mandatory the sentences were sounded okay to me. And they were on your fourth felony sex offence, you went away for a minimum of 25 years. And on your third DUI, driving under the influence of alcohol or drugs, you went to jail for three months. That doesn't sound too bad to me. And 70% of people in Oregon supported mandatory sentencing. But of course, the devil is in the detail. And wouldn't it be a good idea to get 24 people, I don't want to spend all my time working this stuff out, reading the small print in the papers if I can find it, going to the links and doing all my research and having arguments in pubs. I just want this to be sorted the way criminal cases are sorted, which is if nine out of 12 ordinary people reckon the guy's guilty, that's okay with me. I don't have to become an expert in it. And so that's what happened. And they looked at this stuff and if we presume that, and, and it may not have been quite that, but if we presume that 70% of the jurors chosen at random from the electorate were in favour when they went in, that's where they ended up when they thought about it and talked about it and talked to experts and had their own time over four days to decide what they wanted. And that had a substantial effect on the vote, but didn't overturn the popular vote. That's a pretty nice story. That's a pretty good story. If you're interested in Brexit, um, there was a citizen's jury in 2010 with a slightly different question. The question wasn't, it was held in the United Kingdom. The question wasn't, should we leave the EU? The question was, should we have a referendum to leave the EU? Sound familiar? 60% um, of people going into the citizen's jury thought we should. 45% thought we should going out. So once they talked about it, it produced a movement which I think, and this is a basic values thing I think, um, was the right direction. And I think that, and, and for all of the, in all of the areas where people are very concerned, the death penalty is one. The evidence suggests that the the, the, the processing, the slowing down of the deliberative process has an extremely healthy effect. Um, so we've got citizens' juries all over the place there. The, you know, there's something like 42 being run in Australia alone. And I want to do something more than that because they're nice, tame little things that, that politicians have when they're safe. And I think we are now at the stage where we need, if you'll pardon the pun, we need something to trump the situation that we're in. So I want, to I want to conclude by presenting you with a ridiculous vision. It's not ridiculous at all, but it's just me saying what I reckon the Constitution should be, which of course is, who cares? Um, and that's not terribly useful unless, A, it serves as a sort of intellectual ordering device, if you like, and B, if there's a pathway to get there, if that kind of pattern leads to thinking about what sort of activism, what kinds of things you can do to start doing some of this stuff. So my vision is of a citizen's chamber 
uh, like the Boulay, like the Athenian Boulay, I don't think you need 500 people. Um, 299 would be all right. 199 would be all right. Probably 99 would be all right. Uh, I don't care if it's a third chamber of the Australian Parliament or a second chamber replacing the Senate. I don't want to get into an argument. The Senate does some very worthwhile things. Um, and so that's so where the 18th and 19th century were essentially conceived of by the architects of our modern democratic systems as setting up checks and balances between popular democracy and proprietorial or aristocratic democracy. Think of the House of Commons and the House of Lords in the UK. Think of the House of Representatives and the Senate in the United States. Think of the Legislative Council and the, sorry, the Legislative Assembly and the Legislative Council in most states of Australia, which was a property franchise, and you get the picture. And I simply want to um, flip that around to an upper house or an additional upper house elected by lot, which would, by the way, have stopped us abolishing carbon pricing. Um, and the system we, we still have, we've, we've got right now in the lower house forming a government. So that's the idea. Um, and I have a very cool idea, I think, for a power to give the upper house. Firstly, if the upper house votes for something by a simple majority and you've got 99 people and you get you know, the very thinnest majority you can get is 50 versus 49, I might give it a three month delaying power or something. The House of Lords has got a 12 month delaying power. But when you've got a super majority and you can define that as 60% majority or 66% majority, when you've got a super majority and that super majority disagrees with the lower house, you've caught a mouse in your mousetrap, okay? You have identified something that the people's considered opinion differs from their representatives. So what are you gonna do there? Well, you could give it a longer delaying power, you could give it a blocking power. The power I would give it initially is a very sneaky power that I'm very proud of. It is the power to, well, it's not gonna work now. Um, isn't that exciting? <laughs> But I can tell you, I can tell you, so, no. Oh, well, you're gonna wind it on? Isn't that amazing? So, well, no, uh, all right, well, anyway. Um, so simple can delay bills. Super majority of the upper house can <coughs> compel a secret ballot of the lower house. And we know from the election of no, he's thinking of his head in my mind. It might come to me. In 1974, the Liberals had one extra member of the Senate and Senator, anyway, the Labor Party guy won the presidency of the Senate, which was a great embarrassment to the Liberal Party because it was a secret ballot. So votes do shift when people know that no one's watching. Uh, so that's the first attempt to break a deadlock. And if you break the deadlock, that's good. You, you've used no more power than you had to. And the fact that people know that is going to happen has its own kinds of second round effects on people anticipating these things. And then of course, 
something like break a deadlock with a joint sitting or whatever. You can sort of make that up. You, you, you can decide how you're going to do it. So what's a pathway? What is, what is a way to, since nobody is going to do this for me in the, in the foreseeable future, even if all of you people, you nice people agree, what would be something that a bunch of people could do to start changing things? I think it's pretty simple. We've got to go and see some wealthy people, which these days apparently are called high net worth individuals. I never really got that. Uh, and crowdfund a wildcat citizens chamber chosen at random from the people. And that will be our mousetrap. We will be able to see demonstrated to everyone in a nice media friendly way when the people's considered opinion differs from their representatives and that will bring its own pressure to bear on their representatives and we can build from there if we can't fund a standing people's chamber and i've been talking to some people in the united states about a reality TV show that might be built around it, which of course could be a train wreck. Um, but, well, obviously if it was run by the TV executives, you would move out. But if you could govern the chamber, if you could set up an independent method of governance of the chamber, it would be an interesting thing. I mean, we have to get exposure to these ideas. Anyway, um, and then there's temporary chamber for an election season, which is a much cheaper one-off thing. Um, what do you reckon the bill is? I don't know. I haven't, you know, I don't know. Uh, well, I think for a, maybe a million bucks you could run a temporary, a temporary one. Uh, yeah, I haven't, I haven't done the sums, but I don't think it's a huge amount of money. And I think, but the thing is that I think once people saw this, if it was able to gain a lot of um, coverage, if you could actually show it to the people in the western suburbs and the and th then I think you would crowdfund it into existence. I think that enough people in Australia would hand, hand you 50 bucks and say, I'm like a, like a man dying of thirst in the desert and this is an oasis and I want to give it a shot. Um, that's a, that's a, you can look at some links. I've written some of this stuff up. Uh, that's one of the essays that I've written about that. Uh, that is the end of the presentation. Um, <laughs> But I did. Uh, but I did say that I would. Um, I did say that I would put up this list, uh, and we can, you know, maybe we can talk about that. The other thing was some analysis came in late when I was preparing these slides, and I will just show you that. Uh, I can show you that later if we're arguing about mystification down there. Um, we the people. You know, it's there when we want it to be, and then all of a sudden it's the politicians. It's the politicians' fault. Um, and then they're back again, you see, it's amazing. Um, <laughs> this is what would happen. This is how age would be differently represented in a, in a chamber chosen by lot. This is a time when people of my age have managed to filch for themselves a vast amount of economic resources from the young with things like house prices and so on. There's a generational war going on and guess who's winning it? We'll just look at the age here and the number of politicians compared with a representative sample of politicians. And I'm going to do that again for education. 
because the reason we've got a highly toxified way of representing the uneducated, and she's called Pauline Hanson, is because we don't represent the less educated properly. We don't respect them, we don't give them iseguria, and so they get their vox pop, polarised, toxic version of the same thing, which has enough cut through to get into things like the Daily Mail. So there you are, that's, uh, that's my little presentation, and I'm very happy to take questions or otherwise engage in discussion. Explore the Florence Guild podcast with the best talent from Australia and across the world. You can subscribe and rate this podcast on iTunes. For more information on Florence Guild, visit florenceguild.com.